Okay, yeah, so you're all invited to the wine tasting event, but you're like especially invited if you bring friends. Does that make sense? Like if you come by yourself, it's fine. But if you bring friends, it's extra fine. Cool? Well, hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the vineyard. I'm really excited to be teaching this morning. Um, <clears throat> how, was, how was everyone's week? Did we, did we get enough cicadas in our week? Yeah, come on, let's hear it for the cicadas. Bree and I celebrated an anniversary this week, so it was an awesome uh, anniversary week. Yes, I know. It was very good, so shout out to marriage. Um, if you've heard me preach here before, you'll probably remember that I love books. I love books. So really quickly, I'll give you a few book recommendations before I start. I don't have the physical books with me. Usually I do that. But the first one is called The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is actually a theologian from Cincinnati, and uh, he's, he's just spectacular. He's got some amazing perspective on Jesus, some amazing perspective on the kingdom. So The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. And then the second one is, is a book. It's actually a memoir by a man named Thomas Merton called The Seven-Story Mountain. Uh, and it's also just a spectacular work on the kingdom and his life and just some of the things that he uh, you know, learned about Jesus during his walk. And so they kind of tie in with today's theme, which is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. And so when you hear me say that, you might be like, what? The mystery of the gospel? That sounds a little weird. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, so we're going to be talking about the Greek word mysterion, Paul, the apostle Paul, and the revelation of God in Christ. So uh, I want to start with a story. You know, I, I, I love books, and so I remember one time I was sitting in an algebra class in like the ninth grade, and I had a teacher, an algebra teacher. He was a little weird. He always, uh, do you guys know the song, That's Amore? So he would sing That's Amore while we took tests. And if you got an A on your test, he would draw a giant fish across the entire test. And there was no reason for doing that other than just he would draw a big fish on your test. And so I was sitting in his class one day, and, you know, he was a little weird. You could never really tell what he was thinking or what the reason was for anything that he did. And uh, he was talking, and I was probably not really paying attention. And so he, like, called me out in the middle of class, and he said, I'm going to need you to stay after class to talk to me about something. And I was like, yikes, I don't know about this. And so what happened was I stayed after class, and after everyone had left, he brought me a thick volume that had um, a study in Scarlet, the sign of the four, and the return of Sherlock Holmes. So three of Arthur Conan Doyle's original Sherlock Holmes books. And he said, you know, I was looking at you during class, and I was thinking, if you haven't read these, you need to read these. Because I know you're always reading, and I know you love books. So here, take this and read it. And so from that point on, he was, we kind of had this thing where he would, like, loan me books. And he actually got me reading C.S. Lewis before I ever like met Jesus or knew Jesus or cared about Jesus in any way. But I, I loved reading good books. And so, you know, he was, he was just a fascinating guy. And to be honest with you, I don't even know, like, if he's a believer. But he just loved to read. And so he was like, here, read this stuff. Um, so he loaned me, you know, the 39 Steps and the Maltese Falcon and some, like, classic great mystery novels, right? Uh, who here has ever read a mystery novel or, or enjoys mystery novels in any form? Um, you know, Famous ones, right? The Anatomy of a Murder, uh, and Then There Were None, The Big Sleep, The Hound of the Baskervilles, right? These are great classic mystery novels. Maybe for you, it's uh, film more than literature, right? Maybe you love movies, and it's uh, Citizen Kane or The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, right? A, f a famous 
old-time mystery movie or something more contemporary like uh, Knives Out, the Jordan Peele films, right? The, the ones that are kind of captivating audiences now. Whatever it is, mystery captivates us. Mystery captivates us. There's something about, there's just something spectacular about the way that these stories unfold and kind of not knowing what's coming next and being caught by surprise and so on and so forth. Now, if you're really tracking with me and you're like, yes, I love mystery novels, I love reading mysteries, I'm going to say something that might be a little bit deflating. None of the things that I mentioned, none of the books that I just listed or the movies are mysteries in the truest sense. In the truest sense of the word, they're not mysteries. So let me explain. Sherlock Holmes is probably the most famous archetype of the modern mystery, right? Many, many, many books and movies have been based on Sherlock Holmes, right? And so you have this this formula, and what happens is that through observation and deductive reasoning, Sherlock solves crimes. Have you heard that before? Yeah? So he observes these details, and um, there's a quote that I want to share with you that illustrates the point. So in The Adventure of the Crooked Man, now fun fact, this might, you know, win you some prizes in a trivia game sometime. Elementary, my dear Watson, is not a line that Sherlock Holmes ever uttered in any book. It never happened. He never said that. But in this quote, he says, uh, it says, elementary, said he, it is one of those instances where the reasoner can produce an effect which seems remarkable to his neighbor because the latter has missed the one little point which is the basis of the deduction. So what Sherlock is saying here is, I'm smarter and more observant than you, Watson. Therefore, it is I who solved this mystery. He's saying that on the basis of his cleverness, on the basis of his wit and his skills of observation, uh, he has you know, solved these, these crimes. The biblical record contains a strikingly different mystery. Mystery in the truest sense. There's a Greek word that the Apostle Paul and John the Revelator, John who wrote the book of Revelation, use over and over and over again in the New Testament. I think it's something like 20 times or 25 times, and it's the Greek word mysterion, a hidden thing, a secret thing that is not confided to ordinary mortals, is what this word meant in the ancient world. And, and what they're saying when they're saying this is that mysterion can't be solved. Mysterion can't be solved it can only be revealed. It can only be revealed by the, from the outside. So by observing and deducting and paying attention to all the little details, no matter how much wit you have, no matter how clever you are, you cannot solve Mysterion. It can only be revealed to you. It was, a, it was actually referring to a secret purpose or a secret will when, when the pagans would talk about it in, in ancient polytheism, right? It was about uh, something that the gods knew or that the gods desired that could never be known by ordinary people. So what is the mystery of the New Testament? What is this mystery that Paul and John are talking about? Because I would suggest that it's not the same mystery that these pagan polytheists were talking about. Uh, It was, and it still is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we read Paul and John talking about Mysterion, what they're talking about is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So we're going to investigate 
what it means for us in contemporary times to be faithful witnesses to the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into some scriptures. So Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather and the opportunity to, to get into your word and just the opportunity to be in your presence, Holy Spirit. And I ask even right now that you would begin to encounter us, encounter hearts and encounter minds and speak to us, speak to me even as I'm speaking. God, that you would, your, your presence would be thick in this place and we would know that you're here, we would know that you're present. In Jesus' name, amen. Could somebody grab me a water? All I had was coffee this morning, so I'm... Running out of spit. So to begin to explore this mystery and understand what it means for us, we are going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. So if you would like to follow along in your devices, you can open up to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. Thank you. Before we start, I want to give you a little background. So if you want to place this letter in the biblical timeline, uh, it's probably being written about the events of Acts 27 and 28. So if you would like to kind of figure out what's going on and what's on Paul's mind while he's writing this, you can go home this afternoon and you can read Acts 27 and 28 and kind of see what was happening. Paul is most likely in prison in Rome around 62 CE when this is being written. So to the best of our knowledge, there was a Colossian, a man living in, in the city of Colossae, named Epaphras. His name was Epaphras. And he would have heard Paul preach the gospel uh, actually in Ephesus. So if you remember the letter to the Ephesians, right? He would have attended church in Ephesus and heard Paul preach the gospel for the first time. And then what happened was he returned to the Colossian church. It was working, so just, just leave it. Um, so this is a church that was planted around 52 CE, the Colossian church. So it's about 10 years old at the time that Paul's writing them this letter. So this church, if you want to think about it this way, is actually about as old as our church is right now. So if, you know, the, the person who John heard, John Richter heard, preached the gospel for the first time, is writing John a letter for our church, that's basically what this is like. So Paul is writing because the Colossian Christians had been influenced by a teaching that appears to assert that the worship of angels was somehow proper and that by adhering to some weird pagan spiritual practices, they could receive freedom from affliction and enlightenment and physical and spiritual healing, basically by means other than Jesus himself. So that's kind of what Paul is writing to address at this, at this time. So let's go ahead and read this passage, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. So Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We've, we've, we might be familiar with that, that last phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
but we don't often read it in the context of this letter and what Paul is talking about. And he actually calls this a mystery that's being revealed to the believers. So this little passage is about two things. It's about Paul's suffering in prison and how in the midst of that suffering, uh, Paul is stewarding the gospel in his ministry. And so he starts out, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake that in my flesh I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Doesn't that sound kind of funny? Doesn't it almost sound like he's saying like there's something lacking about Jesus or there's something lacking about like the cross or what, what is this? So basically what he's saying is that he's rejoicing in his suffering. So first of all, that directly refutes um, the concept that Christians are never meant to experience any kind of suffering. So in half a sentence, Paul just completely dismantles the prosperity gospel, which I love. And then Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So he's not making the claim that the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't good enough, right? He's not, he's not saying that it was like an incomplete work or that it was insufficient. What he's saying is that the future suffering of everyone like Paul for the sake of the gospel uh, hadn't taken place yet or hadn't been fulfilled yet. So he's saying there's a suffering for the gospel that Jesus himself predicted, right? He, he, Jesus, when he, was, when he was in his earthly ministry, and he was teaching and he was sharing with his disciples, he shared with them you know, that, that you'll be persecuted for this message and that, you know, that that kind of thing will come. So what Paul is saying is that there's some, some suffering that's not yet completed, and so that's what I'm participating in. And um, so it's actually very similar to something that he says in 2 Corinthians when he tells the Corinthians that he risked his life to complete what is lacking in their service to him. So it's the same it's the same language that he uses there. And he goes on, he says, for the sake of the body, for the sake of his body, that is the church. So he's saying this, this suffering isn't for the building up of himself or to have his own great testimony or his own great personal ministry. That he's suffering for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of the people of God in the earth. And so Paul understood the mission of the church, and he loved the church. So for more on that, I would say go back and listen to Josh's message from last week on the church because it was amazing. And, and it brings into view, brings into context what this thing is that Paul says he's suffering for. Right? It's the beauty of Christ being exampled in, in, the church, in the world through his church. So finally, he says, of which... I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So that's very, just a very convoluted way of saying that Paul understands that his calling to image Jesus and to preach the gospel is coming from God, and it's for the church. So it's not for himself. It's not for you know, his own fame or his own notoriety. It's for the church. So Paul continues then to make the word of God fully known, the mystery of hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this, this is what I came to talk about today. I wanted to give you some, some context there for the beginning of the verse, but this is what we really came to talk about. God is a complete mystery unless we behold the Son. Let me say that again. God is a complete mystery unless we behold the Son, Jesus Christ. The character of God, the nature of God, what he's like, how he makes his decisions, what his kingdom is like, a complete mystery 
unless we behold the Son. The early apostles of Jesus clearly understood this. It's not a modern invention in the slightest to say that God is unknowable apart from the Son, Jesus Christ. God is unknowable apart from the Son, Jesus Christ. God reveals himself in general ways all the time. We, we know that. We, the beauty of nature, the way that music provokes us to thought and to feeling, the beauty of human relationships and so on. Those are all general ways that God evidences himself in the world. But the specific revelation of God, if we really want to know what he's like, if we really want to know how he is and who he is, is in the Son, Jesus Christ. There has never been and there never will be a better example there has never been and there never will be a better explanation of what God is like than the person of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying that this mystery is. And we could do a whole series on that. But here's just a few scriptures that you can read that talk about this. John 1, 16 to 18 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John, writing this gospel, knowing the history of, of Judaism, the history of the people of God, knowing the scriptures, knowing them well, says no one has ever seen God apart from the Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 2 and 3 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus he's talking about. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Beautiful. Beautiful pictures of Jesus that we have. And so if we attempt to understand anything of the Bible or anything of the world, for that matter, apart from Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, the truth about God, the truth about who he is, uh, we've taken a deadly detour. But how do we interpret life through the worldview of Jesus? Right? Isn't that our challenge? Isn't that why we're here? To figure out how to interpret life through the worldview of Jesus? You know, I was just having a conversation with before before we got started. It's like, what does it look like to be a faithful witness in the midst of everything that's going on around us right now? How do we figure that out? And the way we figure that out is through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John makes it known that Jesus Christ is the divine logos of God. That means the divine word of wisdom. That means Christ reveals the word of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. It's revealed in the person of Jesus. Remember this. Jesus Christ is the word of God. Jesus Christ is the word of God. The Bible is scripture. The divine will. Jesus is the divine will, the wisdom of and the Word of God is not a book, it is the Son, Jesus. The Bible points us to the Son. All of those things are contained in Jesus, whom the book describes 
You know, one of my favorite things is to go back and read the story of the Emmaus Road. And Jesus is walking with these two disciples who, who don't recognize him, who, who don't realize who he is. And it says that he, he explained to them all the things in Scripture concerning himself. And when you look at what that's actually saying in the Greek, what it's saying is that basically he explains to them that all of the Scripture is concerning himself. That everything in that book is about him. And if we're not through the lens of Jesus Christ, we're missing it. So by the Holy Spirit, the book points us to Jesus, to meet with him, to worship him in spirit and in truth, and to ultimately know the Father by way of Christ. And so if the book feels more real to you than Jesus being a real person, you need to think long and hard about what the resurrection actually means to you and whether you believe Jesus is alive or not. If the book feels more real to you than Jesus Christ, the living person who we confess was raised from the dead, right, and seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is the revelation of God. If the book feels more real to you than that, then we need to think about what the resurrection means. The Bible is a signpost that we can't forsake. We cannot forsake it. It's critical. It's important. It's, it's central to our practice of how we do things, but it's not the destination, and it should never place our belief that Christ actually descended to the dead and actually came back with the keys and will actually do with them what he pleases. Understanding all of this stuff is no good unless we understand how to truly interact with the living Jesus. How do we get the wisdom of God in our lives? How do we walk in, in understanding of our identity if it's a mystery? Because this is the mystery that Paul is referring to. And that's why I'm suggesting that the gospel isn't solved like a mystery novel. It can't be deduced with systematic theology. It cannot be discerned with, with apologetic arguments about the history of the Bible and the contents of the Bible and what the Bible's saying. The, the, the truth about the Son is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It's not... It's not solved by our deep understanding of the things of the Bible. Now, I love the Bible. I mean, I've spent a lot of money studying the Bible, so trust me. I, I think that it's, it's really, really valuable and really, really important that we study the Bible. But what I'm saying is that the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, the truth about how to live isn't solved. It's revealed. It's not about reaching enlightenment. It's not about reaching some secret knowledge that elevates us above others. Because the way that this happens is because Holy Spirit loves us and he loves to reveal this to people. See, we don't even have to ask for him to start revealing things to us because it's just his good pleasure. And that's the difference between the pagan mysterion and the mysterion that Paul is talking about. Because this is a mystery that was hidden before we saw the sun, but now we behold the sun and it's revealed to everyone. So it's interesting. Plato, the philosopher Plato, actually had a way that he liked to illustrate the ancient understanding of mystery, the wrong understanding of mystery. So he had a little allegory that he would tell, and it went something like this. There were people who were chained in leg and neck irons facing the wall in front of them in a cave. And behind them, uh, there was a bonfire out of sight, and there was a puppeteer 
that stood between the people and the bonfire. And so because the people were chained to look at the wall in front of them, they, uh, they couldn't discern, they didn't understand that the shadows on the wall weren't real people. And so the captives falsely believed that the shadows were reality. And a few of these captives, through great hardship, they got free from their chains. And, and they came out, they climbed out of the cave, and they looked into the light, and they were initially blinded by the sun, but they gradually grasp what, what reality is about. And then they return to the cave, and they explain reality to these other people who are in captivity and ignorance. And the parable is ex- intended to explain to the hearer that the everyday things of life are like shadows on a wall, and only with special higher knowledge can we truly achieve enlightenment once we've uh, freed ourselves from the trappings of normal life and we embark on this pursuit of secret wisdom. This is the very thing that Paul was writing against. This is the very thing that Paul was trying to explain to people. The mystery is not like this. That's what people like the Enlightenment philosophers and 18th century American revolutionaries believe. The problem with that is that Christ cultivates the environment that releases the imaginations of his people, and he does it by the Spirit. He does it by the Spirit. See, this parable, it relies on one liberated individual going and climbing to the mountaintop to bring new sight and enlightenment, when in fact it's the Spirit of God in Jesus who causes all people to see in new ways and enter the kingdom. And he gives it freely. He gives it freely. He loves to give it. He gives it freely. He gives away the keys to this mystery because he longs to let us in on it. Plato relies on a heroic leader, but the story of Jesus and the way that God shows up in the most God-forsaken places is proof that God is revealing himself to us in better ways than some secret knowledge for just a few. That's what it means when it says that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit is present to start revealing that mystery to people. That's where he's at. That's what he's doing. And so all we have to do is ask. And in fact, sometimes we aren't even asking when the mystery begins to be revealed. That's why conspiracy theories are so sinister, because they subvert the way that the Spirit of God works to reveal the Son, and in turn, they steal the birthright of the Son to reveal truth, and they replace his function with that of the enlightened individual from Plato's Secret knowledge, apart from the Holy Spirit, is demonic. So when I met God for the first time, when I started to encounter Jesus, I wasn't asking for this mystery to be revealed. I wasn't even interested in it. I was in a room with some people, some of the people I knew and some of the people I didn't know. And, uh, you know, it was a youth group, Bible study kind of thing, small group. There were maybe a dozen of us. And, and I was far from the things of God. And I was not interested in the things of God. And one of the people in the room started to pray. I don't remember what he was praying or why he was praying or what the, the content was, the purpose was. But in that moment of genuineness, in that moment of, of seeking God, in that moment of coming face to face with the Holy Spirit, he started to reveal this mystery to me that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I was captivated by it. 
I couldn't stay away from it because I was so fascinated that, that in this moment of not even asking for the goodness of God to be revealed, it, it washed over me in a moment. And I think that that's what, that's what God wants to do in our world today. If we'll give him space to do it, if we'll give him space to do it, he wants to encounter people through the testimony of our lives. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the kind of stewardship that he's talking about. He's stewarding the gift that is his calling. He's stewarding the gift that is his understanding of his identity. And, and it's, it's for the people of God to come into this, um, this knowledge that he wants to release them into. So Paul finishes by saying just what this mystery is that he's speaking of. He says, to them, that is the saints... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God has chosen to make known how great the riches of the glory of this mystery truly are. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when we, when we start to think about what does that mean, what is Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's easy to deliver you know, meaningless platitudes like, well, Jesus is the answer all the world's problems. What are we going to do with that this week? Nothing, right? That doesn't give us anything, anything actionable whatsoever. So, you know, I can't think of what, what we would do with that explanation, but there is another explanation that kind of gives us something to do about it. So the conclusion that I've come to is that Jesus already answered the question, what is Christ in us, the hope of glory? He answered it with a prayer that he prayed on the way to the cross. And so I'm going to read it to you. He said, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus talking about his, his followers, his disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only. So now he's praying for you. Um, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So wait a minute. Think about this. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Keep that in mind as we continue reading this prayer. So... Um, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what is this? What's the purpose of this? He's saying that we are to be in him as he is in the Father, and there's this crazy, like, you know, who's in who and what's going on here, right? But the, the purpose that he comes to at the end is... Uh, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So the purpose of all this, the purpose of Christ in us, the hope of glory, is to bring that glory to people, is to show that glory to people, to reveal that glory to people. That is the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Holy Spirit is doing this work of revealing this mystery. Jesus goes on and he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, Jesus, that was a very confusing way of saying all that. But the love is crucial. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The love of Jesus is the thing that's in us, is the hope of glory, is the mystery that's being revealed to the saints. <clears throat> so if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. I had a conversation with a worker earlier this week who came to me, and he was raised Jehovah's Witness, and he left the, the JWs and is just kind of like, you know, doing his own thing now. He's not really part of any, you know, spirituality or religion or anything like that. And, and he asked me, he was like, why do you think your religion is right and the others are wrong? And it was an awesome conversation. I just talked to him and I was like, man, you know, the truth is that the, the completeness of who Jesus is, the complete revelation of the character of God isn't what necessarily makes Christianity right and other religions wrong, but, but it's what makes this the complete understanding of who God is. It's what gives us insight into the character of God and the behavior of God and how much God loves the world. And the thing that sets this apart is that, you know, John says this all the time, and I love it, that these other world religions are focused on people, getting people to God, right? Getting people to God. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then the whole point of this gospel is God getting himself to us. That's the distinct quality that Jesus brings, and that is this mystery of Christ in us that's not found anywhere else, and it's beautiful. And it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the person of Christ. It's not revealed to us by a great teacher. It's not revealed to us by secret knowledge that's only available from the right person at the right time. It's available to us by the Holy Spirit who's out on all flesh. God has made himself known and is at the same time endless and limitless and, and completely without end. And so it's unfathomable that a mystery like this could be revealed to you and I. But it has been. How good is that? And, and, and the mystery is that this infinite God, this infinite God, this endless God who is Jesus fits inside of finite humanity. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Did anyone feel finite this week? Did anyone maybe feel a little limited in our understanding of things, in our behavior, in our actions, in our responses, right? And, and even so, the, the boundless, limitless God who is Christ is in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a mystery. What a mystery can't be solved. It can only be revealed, right? How do, we, how do we parse that apart? How do we understand that with deductive reasoning and logic? We can't. It's impossible. It's a mystery that's being revealed and is at the same time endless. And so, you know, that's why I love when I meet people for whom 
the concrete isn't dry. Because we have to keep learning. We have to keep pressing into this endless mystery. We cannot decide that we have it all figured out. We cannot decide you know, that we have morality or ethics or whatever completely figured out because there is an endless mystery that is Christ and he's constantly revealing more and more of his limitlessness to us. And when we decide that we have it figured out, we cut ourselves off from that. We've cut ourselves off from going deeper into the mystery that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory sounds great to me, the way Jesus described it. Does it sound good to you? Does it? Genuinely. If the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals Jesus, who reveals the mystery of the Scriptures, I think we should make some room for him. Right? I think we should make some room for him. Because, you know, all these things that we talk about, we talk about prophecy, and we talk about healings, and we talk about tongues, and we talk about these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, why are they there? Why are they there? Why do they exist? They exist to reveal another layer of the mystery to us, right? I need more of Christ in me, the hope of glory in my marriage. I need more of it in, you know, my... my leadership. I need more of it in my friendships. I need more of it in my relationships with my family. And that is what Holy Spirit does. You know, the manifestations, they're just a vehicle for us, for him to release more of the hope of glory into our lives. What I want to do now is invite the worship team back up. And as we worship today, what I want us to think about, I want, to, I want us to set our minds on the thing, hope of glory. What would the hope of glory look like in your life if, if there was another measure of the hope of glory revealed to you this morning? Jesus doesn't do what he does with force. He said it himself, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. So he's not coercive, he's not manipulative. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, it is like a mustard seed. It's like a woman looking for something she lost. It's like a father welcoming his son home who missed him deeply. It's like scattering seed. It's like yeast. And so I want you to pay attention while we're worshiping and when we go into ministry time this morning to what, the, what thoughts are going through your mind and what kinds of things are you feeling in your body because the kingdom of God comes like yeast. It'll start very, very small, right? Maybe the, the next thing that Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about your life will just start as a fleeting thought, one word that you can't get out of your head. And I would encourage you to press into that thing, not dismiss it. And as we worship, just make some room for Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like, whether you need to sit or stand or dance or you know, do whatever it is that you need to do. Sing the words or don't sing the words, but make some room for Holy Spirit to reveal a little bit more glory to you while we worship. So Father, we just thank you for this, this mystery that you're revealing and that it's not a secret from us, that you desire to give more and more and more and more of it and reveal it through us. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would make us more aware of your presence and more aware <clears throat> of what you're doing in the room. And Jesus, we invite you to speak to us. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your insight. We need your encouragement. We need your joy, Lord. So would you bring it this morning? Amen. Amen.